Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer. And your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she also sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on television on 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, Dateline, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Who's your guest tonight? We have a great author, professor, and incredible guest with us tonight. And he is the author of a book I just finished reading called Privacy in Peril, How We Are Sacrificing a Fundamental Right in Exchange for Security and Convenience. So tonight we're going to be interviewing James Rule, and let me tell you a little bit about him. He happens to be up there in Northern California. He is a distinguished affiliate scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. And here we are at the University of California, Irvine. So he's up there. Uh, He's a former fellow of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. He is author of Private Lives and Public Surveillance, which is a winner of the C. Wright Mills Award. And his work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Washington Monthly, and the New York Times Book Review. And I was searching online for something about privacy, and I saw some quote that he said, and I said, hmm, this is interesting. I have to get this book. I have to talk to this guy. And I am so thrilled that he is here to join us. Thank you so much for coming to us today. I know you have a meeting, and you're so nice to spend some time with us today, James. It's great to be with you, and I look forward to uh, 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 searching and lively discussion. Okay, great. Well, Privacy in Peril is all about how the government and private institutions collect and use more and more data in more and more areas of our lives. So when and how did these trends begin? Unlike a lot of observers, I'm convinced that uh, these trends toward more and more demands from institutions for uh, data, often intimate data about ourselves, go back even before the computer. We can see early in the 20th century, both uh, in government and private institutions, uh, the desire for bureaucracies of different kinds, organizations to uh, to keep systematic track of the people they're dealing with, and to adjust the way they treat people to the to their reading of our records. And uh, as a result, uh, the the movement toward a more intensely monitored way of life was well underway before anyone ever thought of applying computing to the process. Right, but you know we've had all this incredible technology so now information can be gathered and stored on tiny little pieces of equipment that before would take up a whole building. So isn't that responsible for a lot of the loss of the privacy that and what's going on now in the world we live in? It certainly makes an enormous difference uh, because uh, it reduces the cost uh, but it reduces the cost of doing something that institutions, again, both government and private, have been wanting to do for more than 100 years, and that is to, to, to deal with literally millions of people, but to do so in ways that take exact account of their individual circumstances. So we, is privacy gone? No, it's not gone, but uh, we're losing out in a particular kind of struggle over privacy. Uh, When we deal with institutions, 
more and more of our lives are recorded now, as you say, typically uh, by computer and available to the institutions we deal with. Now, of course, at the same time, uh, we're gaining some other kinds of privacy. We, we probably have to face fewer demands from uh, the people next door and our church or our community or our extended family uh, because we live in a more mobile society and we don't have as much face-to-face uh, demand on our on our uh, information. But in terms of our dealings with uh, the people who give us credit or the people who collect our income taxes or the people who check us on to air flights, uh, we're definitely losing more and more control of information. And so is that how you uh, define privacy in the information age, the right to control what information is disseminated about us? That's right. I, I think the most sensible definitions of privacy have to do with uh, or uh, identify it as some form of ability to uh, keep information to oneself even against demands from others. And the, the same thing applies to privacy in our face-to-face relationships. Uh, you know, we, if we have privacy, that means that uh, we don't have to tell the people that we work with about uh, our sexual preferences or our uh, marital history or our credit uh, scores or you know other other things that people naturally are curious about, and by the same token, uh, when dealing with institutions, uh, a private world is one that gives m- ordinary people more opportunities to just say no to demands for data. Well, we don't really have that ability to say no, do we? I mean, when you go to the doctor, you don't have a right to to keep information. Although I now don't give my social because I tell them, hey, you know, my my health carrier is not my social security number. So if they absolutely have to have something, I give them the last four numbers. But most people don't feel that they have any uh, opportunity or any right to object to giving information that's required by your doctor, your lawyer, or certain organizations. You know, a lot of the services are taken away from us if we don't provide that information. Well, it depends what kind of information. When you go to the doctor, uh, usually still uh, you're largely responsible for giving your own medical history. And I believe people do censor uh, unseemly or what they consider unseemly details of their medical histories, even when they're seeking medical care. But, of course, in a world where all medical records are centralized, which is now under discussion in this country, even that degree of censorship would not be possible. What do you think about that, what, when, that we're going to have central databases with all of our medical information? Well, what concerns does that, that bring up for you? In, in many ways, it's a, it's a, a paradigm for the, the sorts of privacy dilemmas that I think are uh, just uh, pervasive in the world that we live in. And, uh, there is, uh, as I mentioned, this proposal now to have a single central repository of all medical information that Americans amass so that uh, uh, and and there would be many useful and humane and uh, life-saving uses for such a repository would mean that if you're taken ill and unable to explain uh, unconscious perhaps unable to give account of your medical history that uh, people in an emergency ward might be able to access your would be able to access your file and uh, and no information that could be uh, life-saving but on the other hand whenever it's known whenever it's established that all of a certain kind of information about any anyone is uh, uh, located in a single place, it becomes like your tax return. Then, then uh, declining to give this information or declining to give some part of this information to any institution that can claim a legitimate interest is uh, it, be, it becomes all but impossible. So think of what's happened with uh, with over the the decades with IRS returns. Obviously, the idea that uh, that people had to give declarations of their financial affairs to support their uh, their tax returns is, uh, was slowly assimilated in American life, and people accepted it because they accepted it was a reasonable thing for governments to uh, to do. But now, no one, no American, can reasonably deny that he or she has a tax return, and uh, those tax returns, the tax returns that we all have, of course, are now demanded for all the sorts of purposes, to, to, to apply for financial aid for your children in college or right. to apply for a mortgage. And this is information which is collected under government compulsion, 
but one is required to share it with other institutions, uh, and one can't reasonably say, "Well, I, I lost it, or I didn't, I, I, I don't have a tax return." That's not a plausible defense. Right. And I'm afraid that something similar could happen with medical information. You know what scares me about this medical information? It's, um, I'll tell you, I have a lady that called me this week, and I've talked to her before. Her medical information was mixed up with someone else because another woman stole her identity and got health care in her name. And actually, this is happening more and more. And so what I'm concerned about is in this medical repository, there are no rights like we have, for example, with a credit bureau or even with your tax return if there's errors. I mean, we create our own tax returns, so the, the errors are really, you know, on our shoulder. Um, in, a, in a credit bureau... It's, it's actually more like a credit bureau having this central repository for medical information, only you don't have the rights that you have with a credit bureau. With a credit bureau, if you see your credit report, which you can do now and get your free credit report at annualcreditreport.com, um, you can actually dispute and have it corrected based on the information you provide. Right now, even under HIPAA, you don't have that right you know, the fair information principles don't really apply. So if you have a central repository with medical information and it's all reported to this one place and somebody is using your identity to get health information, that's a problem because it's going to be erroneous. Or what if it's just somebody marked the wrong box? Yes, or what if you have the same name and even the same date of birth as somebody else? That's not unheard of. Right, there uh, might be a lot of James Rule. That's right. In okay. fact, there was. When I looked you up, I found like about five of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. You, we like to think of ourselves as unique, but we're not. And uh, people who, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in, over the years as, uh, as a researcher talking to people who deal with very large numbers of records and even people with unusual names, like James Rule, uh, find that they have lots of counterparts, and occasionally you'll find the people with the same name and, and the same date of birth. So it doesn't, even without uh, malevolent intent, right. uh, terrible mix-ups can occur. In fact, they said, you know, the P United States Public Interest Research Group did a study, and it does a study every year, and last year they found that 60 to 70 percent of credit reports have errors, and 25 percent of those are enough to keep you from even getting a job. We're not even talking about identity theft. We're talking about just errors that people, you know, if, if your Social Security number is similar to someone else's or your name is similar, maybe it's not James Rule, but it's Jeffrey Rule, and somebody couldn't read their writing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen with these medical records in the central repository where you and I don't have the right to review them in detail and dispute them and correct them. Well, of course, it's a, a central uh, element of what they call fair, fair information practices. That is the, 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 the sort of global world, the global standard of privacy protection, that people ought to be able to access their information and to challenge erroneous data. And one can hope that such uh, such provisions will be built into uh, uh, any system for national medical data in this country or anywhere else. But what ultimately worries me even more is what happens when these systems succeed, when when they do inspire public confidence, when people participate in them willingly, and then decide, wait a second, maybe this is just too much information, even even if given in a good cause, even even if provided in the interest of uh, securing the best medical care for, for everyone. Do we well, really want... Think, yeah, and people think, well, you know, they, they bring up the issue of Katrina, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, what if we have a big earthquake or a tsunami, Katrina, any of these disasters where everything would be lost from our houses and, and maybe our hospitals? So if there was a central repository and you needed to get a prescription immediately... You could go to that and get the kind of medical care you would need, even if it was destroyed in your own state. So that's what they're saying. Uh -huh. They're they're saying in the interest that that would be so important that that would, you know, uh, outbalance the the privacy concerns. What do you say to that? Well, uh, of course, how things balance depend on what weight you ascribe to the to the quantities uh, the commodities on the two sides of the of the balance. Uh, I'm one of these types who worries a lot about uh, the effects of systems like these when they go wrong. Uh, 
and uh, the book as a whole, uh, Throughout Privacy and Peril, I, I try to argue that uh, we'd be better off sacrificing uh, a significant measure of efficiency or safety or even justice uh, in order to have a world in which uh, we don't have so much information uh, slipping around loosely about ourselves and where we, where we maintain more control over whether data about ourselves gets entered or kept in, in systems of this kind. Right. And and I think that's, I mean, I would agree with you, and I agreed with the premise of your book. I think the, the problem is, is that the interests that want this information have more power than you and I have. Well, I think that's largely true, but I think that uh, the institutions that demand personal data uh, could not succeed if it weren't for a significant ambivalence <laughs> on the part of the public. Uh, we know, of course, that uh, public desires to be protected after 9-11 uh, did certainly get exploited by the authorities and continue to be exploited uh, in ways that have ended up uh, reducing privacy by any ordinary standard of that word. Right, sacrifice uh, privacy in in as opposed to security. That's, exactly. what, that's what we've been taught, or mm -hmm. that's what we've been told is going to have to happen. But one of the arguments that I try to put forward in Privacy and Peril is that uh, we often don't know in reality what we're getting in exchanges for in exchange for loss of information about ourselves. In the case of, of uh, the, the demands that have been placed for access to personal data after 9-11, we don't really know whether any dangerous figures have been apprehended by virtue of this uh, general systemic loss of privacy that we've experienced, or to take a case that's that's more out in the more out in the open, where the the evidence is more apparent. Uh, a lot of the book is devoted to discussions of credit and credit reporting. It's a very very sophisticated system that uh, the United States perfected, in which credit reporting agencies. Uh, monitor all of our accounts, whether they're good accounts or bad bad accounts, whether we like it or not. If you have credit, uh, your credit accounts are likely to be reported every month or perhaps more frequently to credit reporting agencies. So that if you if you have a dispute with a credit creditor or, or if if an account goes bad for some reason and you don't pay or they uh, or the creditor feels that you haven't paid and you think that you have uh, that's a black mark on your credit and it's up to you in in this system we have in this country to uh, to appeal for uh, uh, for an adjustment in your credit record right. other countries Australia and France and there's a there's a good bit of discussion about this in the book, mm -hmm. get along without this kind of intrusive credit reporting. You don't get much of a credit record in either France or Australia unless you are legally delinquent in an account. So no news is generally good news so far as uh, the consumer is concerned. It's a much more private, privacy-friendly system. Right. Europe is like that, but don't they pretty much, and I know Denmark is like that as well, um, but don't they usually go to their own bank? They get their credit cards from their own bank, some some institution that already knows them. So isn't that the reason that they're not really, um, at this point, it's much more of a face-to-face -face type uh, credit authorization? There are other ways of uh, establishing bona fides uh, credit records uh, to the satisfaction of prospective creditors, and, and they do these things in, in France and Australia. You, there is credit reporting in Australia, by the way. The, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the industry doesn't have as much to report on, but they do sell reports, uh, and uh, those reports, among other things, consist of records of delinquent accounts, which will indeed uh, make credit more difficult if you have them. But... Um, in France, for example, you provide uh, pay stubs to uh, indicate your uh, pay, and you can you can provide records of other accounts that uh, uh, that you have to establish that you are capable of paying accounts. But what you don't have to do, or what you don't have to be subjected to in in France or in Australia, is reporting from accounts uh, that uh, you have never authorized to report on you. And I think that's a big plus for privacy. There, these are still consumer societies. Uh, credit cards abound. People buy on uh, time, on installment plans, as they do in the United States. Uh, so I think the gain in privacy is well worth 
uh, a modicum of, of loss of efficiency in, in credit that, uh, uh, that, uh, that we win, I suppose, by having creditors check on us whether we like it or not. Right, right. We're speaking with James B. Rule, who is a distinguished affiliated uh, scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of a great new book called Privacy in Peril, How We Are Sacrificing a Fundamental Right in Exchange for Security and Convenience. You know, when I was reading your book, I, I had to laugh. The same thing happened to me. You were talking about when you refinanced your house and you actually read the papers and you're like me. I read everything. I drove everybody nuts, but I read everything, you know, with, and l went through it with a fine tooth comb. And you, and you were talking about how um, they wanted you to authorize that they could get your uh, tax returns for future years. <laughs> and I read that too. And I said, what? Absolutely not. And I like crossed it out and made all these changes and they all looked at me and I, you know, there were many things that they also wanted me to provide um, a lot of other access to information about me in the future. And um, you probably noticed this also when you when you um, refinanced or bought your home, that at the same time, there was a disclosure to you that they had uh, that you could not opt out of them sharing with their affiliates, and I know the uh, the title company had a had a disclosure in my package when we refinanced, and it said, you know, we w we have the right under federal law, which is you know the Graham Leach Bligh Act, that we can share with our affiliates, and then they had ten pages of affiliates. And I had finally in my life, after being a victim of identity theft, I had finally gotten off of all these pre-approved offers and all of these things that were sent to me. I wasn't getting a lot of junk mail with pre-approved offers anymore because I had just opted out and all that. Well, when I refinanced and this happened, all of a sudden I started getting tons of this junk mail. And I knew exactly where it came from. Mm-hmm. So well, you don't have a right. See, that's the problem with our laws, and, and we are different from the European Union in that our laws, like the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, basically already allows all these financial institutions to share with their affiliates, and we, aren't, we don't have that right to opt out. That's right. Uh, uh, there was uh, a movement in California to create such a right, well, we did. Actually, we have a right with when um, Senator Jackie Spear, who was on our show, and she had the uh, Financial Privacy Act in California, and she, she did get a law passed that said that w that no company could sell our information to third-party non-affiliates without our prior permission, which is opposite than Gramm-Leach-Bliley. But then she also gave us a right to opt out of the affiliates. But that went to court, and they said that the federal law preempted our law, so it got thrown out. That's right. Well, it was uh, preempted at the national level by, uh, I believe, through legislation in, in Congress, which is a little bit like the uh, federal government preempting Californians' efforts to keep their air <laughs> cleaner. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, you know, you wonder what you're, what you're supporting the government in Washington for. I think it would be a terrific idea if uh, a new kind of right were established for all Americans, and that is a, a kind of property right over the commercial exploitation of data about oneself, so that uh, data about one's own life, uh, one's credit history or one's salary or one's uh, consumption preferences would be a kind of property like one's the water rights to one's real property or the air rights above one's house and one wouldn't one would uh, with certain exceptions uh, not ever have to give up those rights unless one were compensated for doing so right it's like a quid pro quo <laughs> exactly and and you know sometime i remember when a friend of mine years ago when she got her first computer she got her first computer if she would agree to allow them to follow her around on the internet <laughs> and that's how she got it and and she at least it was transparent mm -hmm. do you know what i mean even though i told her she was nuts and i would never do that in a, in a million years but that you know she wanted to get this great new computer so you know, you're right. If you if you get compensated and you know the ramifications of what you're doing and it's transparent, then you know, then you have a right as a free person to do that. That's right. And if one has privacy rights, one has rights also to disclose. Uh, 
But if you have no choice in the matter, you certainly have no privacy. You might you might have privacy about your sex life and decide to come out of the closet, or you might have privacy over your credit history and decide uh, on ripe reflection that you want to disclose it. But you're right. still in control in those cases. Uh, in the in the credit environment that we inhabit in the United States, one doesn't have much control, and it's. Uh, I just can't think of any reason for doing things this way. And, and, you know, I would agree with you, but how do we how do we change this paradigm? How do we shift this to get that control? I mean, we need you to go over, you know, I've learned from testifying in Congress myself that the only time I can get them to do something different, like with the identity theft legislation that I've testified about and other privacy issues is, I have to bring in these horror stories, get it in the news, in the media, so everybody gets up in arms and says, what, aren't you guys doing something about this? And then we get some laws passed. But, you know, the problem is, is every time I've been involved with that, the uh, the legislators go, yeah, you're right, this is a terrible, horrible story. But then somehow it gets watered down when they get taken to dinner by all these lobbyists for the credit bureaus or the big companies. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Well, it's a, this is an enormous industry, and you can simply imagine the reaction of that industry if if uh, Americans really did own their own data, if we really were uh, the owners of the use of our name, much as a celebrity were the owners, and then that would uh, that would place the credit reporting industry and the insurance information industry and much uh, and the. Uh, the uh, the uh, industries that report uh, on people's consumption habits for uh, direct mailing uh, concerns, they would then all have to to pay for what they're now basically getting for nothing. That is uh, personal information, the raw material of the products that they're uh, producing, which uh, the value of which, of course, really lies in our own lives. So if it comes from us, why not let us at least decide whether we want it to be sold or traded? Right, right. So we're, you know, we're living in this information society, which you talk about in your book, Privacy and Peril. And um, what happened? I mean, what people argue that if we don't allow this free flow of information, that everything that we have that's so inexpensive um, would be so cost prohibitive. What do you believe about that? Well, it's a kind of argument like the, to the effect that uh, if, if we don't have invasion of privacy, we'll all go back to some kind of uh, pre-informational stone age. Uh, you know, uh, my experience is looking at credit in, uh, in these countries that don't have this American-style aggressive credit reporting. Uh, have convinced me that credit is uh, available, and people avail themselves of it in France and in Australia, even though the uh, those systems are far more private than the systems we have in this country. Uh, Americans have been convinced that organizations have needs, and I'm, I'm using invisible quotes around needs, needs for information that unless they're satisfied, uh, organizations will be unable to do their work. But it's just not true. You know, other countries with better privacy restrictions uh, most certainly still have provide their people with productive, convenient lives. So, uh, those the idea that organizations need information about people has to be taken with a tremendous grain of salt. It certainly is true that organizations, business organizations, uh, can make more money, and and government bureaucracies can get things done more efficiently. Uh, in general, the more they know about people. But efficiency and profit aren't everything, after all. Well, we're also finding when, when our big, you know, American companies do business in Europe, they have to have a different paradigm with how they deal with the sensitive information and the personal identifying information of the residents of those countries. Mm-hmm. So it always drives me nuts that, a company that I deal with, whether it's, you know, GM or whomever, that also deals with residents in other countries, gives more privacy protection to those non-Americans than they do to the Americans. Indeed. And, uh, the you know, having, having lived in Europe, uh, the, the information environment 
there for personal information is just vastly different. For one thing, when you deal with a, a company, uh, when you subscribe to a magazine or give money to a charity or, or uh, buy something on mail order or take out a credit card, uh, that that information may not be exchanged without one's permission. It's not a, a property right, but it's, it's simply a, a legal requirement. One one has to release, one has to give one's permission in order to uh, uh, to see that information exchanged or to have that information exchanged. It's a far more privacy-friendly regime than the one that we have here. Uh, and that's the that's the difference between opt-in and opt-out. Could you explain that so that my audience understands the difference between opt-in and opt-out? Oh, certainly. Um, one can uh, maintain systems of personal records with the proviso that uh, those records are subject to being released uh, unless one uh, declares in some way that's, that's specified that one does not want one's efforts, uh, one's information released. And that, that's, uh, in that case, you opt out. Another kind of rule, a more privacy-friendly rule, uh, says that uh, information held in file uh, must not be released unless you opt in, unless you positively indicate that you want that information to be disclosed. Of course, a third possibility, which prevails in much American record-keeping, is the no no op, op, opportunities for options at all. In other words, once information is out of your hands, uh, it's utterly in the discretion of the organization holding it as to what becomes of it. So there, that's that's no option. I guess that's the no option <laughs> option. Right. So you know where where people are most used to finding out about that is is in the financial industry. So most people will remember that they got some that they get letters in the mail every year about this time. In the you know toward the beginning of the year and early part of the year that that tells them here is you know your privacy is important and then they give you all these disclosures which really aren't rights but disclosures and so we will share with everyone we want to unless you tell us not to <laughs> and um, and so but sometimes they don't even say unless you tell us not to sometimes right. they say uh, if you want to have this account be prepared for us to share uh, with often they say. Uh, companies with whom we have joint marketing agreements. Right, right, because that is, you don't have a right under federal law, and, and that affects us in California as well as everywhere in this country. Anybody listening to this, you don't have that right under federal law. So, you know, the whole point is is that we didn't have to have the law, and it, that, that law passed in 1999. It could have gone the other way. It could have said hey, no one can sell your information unless they get prior permission, which would be the opt-in like you're talking mm -hmm. about in Europe. And, uh, but we don't have that. Indeed. And uh, you'd think the way that the American industry carries on that uh, they must be living in some sort of uh, consumer stone age in Europe. But in fact, uh, you know, commerce goes on. The people buy things and sell things. Companies seem to flourish and prosper. And uh, keeping uh, making some sacrifice uh, for privacy certainly hasn't stopped the show in those countries. So I really don't think that uh, the losses to efficiency or profitability would be uh, anything near fatal to American industry if they would just uh, show a little more interest in privacy. We're speaking with James Rule, who is the Distinguished Affiliated scholar at the Center for the law, Study of Law and Society at the University of California up in Northern California, Berkeley. And he is also the author of his previous book, Private Lives and Public Surveillance. And his new book is Privacy in Peril. How are we sacrificing a fundamental right in exchange for security and convenience? James, you know, the fact that you lived in Europe, you know, it makes me think about the difference in our whole view of privacy in this country. We are the only economically advanced country that I know of that does not have a privacy commission. I think about all the privacy commissioners, whether it be in Europe or Canada or Australia, New Zealand, why don't we have a privacy commission with an overall privacy framework? Well, one explanation is a historical explanation, and that is that uh, when the first demands for 
serious privacy legislation surfaced in this country at the federal level and during the Watergate era, uh, there was an important bill that uh, Sam Irvin, the senator uh, holding the Watergate hearings, was shepherding through Congress that did uh, provide for a privacy a national privacy board and a national privacy protection commissioner. And that, uh, that institution was knocked out of the bill by uh, the resistance of the Gerald Ford administration. So the controversy which began in the United States, which has, uh, I believe, the first national-level legislation of this kind, uh, then moved to Europe, where they ended up creating exactly the kind of uh, national privacy uh, commissions that were re- that was rejected in the United States. There's very little uh, there's very little movement to establish such an officer in this country. Uh, I haven't heard anybody in in the presidential campaign saying, you know, this is something that we ought to do. Well, if you remember, into the Clinton administration, he did at least have. Peter Swire, do you remember? He mm-hmm. was like his privacy guru, and you know, I've I've actually had Peter on our show, and uh, I I went to the White House, and I remember I gave that a speech when when the president was talking about Graham Leach Bliley, and I was at the White House, and my knees were shaking and all that. But afterwards, I I had a few minutes to talk with him, and I said, why don't you create <laughs> a privacy commission? You know, and he goes, oh well, you know, whatever. But he ha- at least he had Peter Swire at the time, which was at least somebody to look at some of the privacy issues at a higher level. Well, indeed, and, and Peter, Peter Swire is an enormously talented man, and uh, I think he did uh, the best uh, with the hand that was uh, dealt to him. But experience teaches that the executive branch is uh, the least friendly branch of any government uh, on privacy issues because... Uh, the executive, uh, the president, or the prime minister, or whoever it is, uh, is responsible for prosecuting government programs and getting things done, and they often find it convenient to know as much as possible about their citizens that they're trying to govern. Uh, the courts and legislatures in general have been more supportive of privacy guarantees and privacy institutions. Uh, and I think if we're, if we're ever to have a, a National Privacy Commission in the United States, it will have to be through action by Congress. Right, right. So have you written to Congress and said, hey, guys, here's my <laughs> book, but, as, but here's the short term, <laughs> that, you know, this is really what we need. It's in the best interest of everybody, and these are the reasons why. I mean, it just, we have to do something to have them feel the need and i don't think they feel the need i think i think you're right i think american americans in general uh, don't uh, how shall i put this uh, tactfully or don't look readily to other countries for examples of how they might do things here in the united states uh, i don't think they know you know i i think someone like you who is a scholar who's a sociologist who's lived there who does the comparison who's astute about these kinds of things and me as a regular practitioner and one who travels and have had people stay with me from other countries, you know, you and I are more in tune with that, but I don't think that people have the opportunity to understand those differences. You know, I, I don't think it's that they don't want to see it. I just don't think it's readily apparent to them. I, I think you're right. Uh, I think most Americans are, well, aside, since I have occasion to make this report. Most Americans are uh, flabbergasted when they find that they're living in the only country, the only advanced democracy without a, 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 an ombudsman for right. privacy. Right. Um, but of course, uh, the people who occupy those roles in other countries are subject to the same political pressures that occur here in the United States, and so they're not all powerful. Uh, the best that can be said for privacy commissioners as a category is that uh, they have the, uh, the right and the opportunity to uh, speak up, and uh, at least they can make a fuss if they wish to do so. But uh, it's instructive in the case of the events following 9-11. Uh, the, every country has increased the grip of government uh, on uh, the, the logs of telecommunications, including telephone calls and emails that ordinary citizens are, uh, make 
Right. So, so the, the the records of one's telephone use and one's email communications are um, retained longer in, in this country and in other countries than they were before 9-11. And this, all of this, of course, in the name of national security. And privacy commissioners in general uh, in Europe and other countries have objected to this trend, but that hasn't stopped it from occurring. So I think it's a, it's a mistake to imagine that uh, if we had a privacy office, a privacy ombudsman in this country and a, a privacy commissioner, that, that that figure or that institution would somehow turn the politics of privacy around because... Uh, you know these these tensions between disclosure and uh, and the prerogatives of institutions on the one hand and individual rights in keeping control of one's own information they go very deep and uh, political climates of climates of public opinion change and so uh, i i like to think that we may be swinging after 911 back toward a more uh, vigorous public insistence on on uh, the rights of uh, of ordinary citizens to control their data but um, we've got to wait and see what happens uh, in the next uh, electoral cycle. You know, it's interesting because we in this country had developed a framework for governmental privacy, right? With the Privacy Act, mm-hmm. was that in 1974? Mm-hmm. And so adopted we, right after Watergate. By right, the way. right, right. And I remember that. And and so that was the way we went toward governmental privacy and. It appears that the 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 European Union went more toward uh, commercial privacy. In general, in, the European countries have uh, adopted broad rights that apply equally to government-held data and to private sector data. Isn't in it United different States, in Canada, though? I think Canada. We had the privacy commissioner on for Canada, and. My recollection was that actually they there was the opt in for for commercial, but not really for government. Oh, that's right. And inevitably, I think in almost any country, uh, certain kinds of requirements uh, for providing data to governments will uh, will be ones that people don't have any uh, choice about. It. It's hard to imagine. Uh, how taxes, income taxes, could be collected if people had an absolute right of privacy over their financial affairs, because people would just tell the government to go away. So then, uh, that 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 wouldn't work very well. So, but in in Canada, there are broad rights uh, in two different laws: one for dealings with for people's dealings with government institutions, and another for uh, dealings with uh, companies and other private sector uh, bodies. Yeah, the United States is is the only uh, advanced, demo- prosperous democracy that I know of that doesn't have general rights uh, uh, for personal data uh, pr- protection across pri- the, the private sector. We have, as people often point out, uh, piecemeal legislation about video rental records and right. health care records, uh, right. uh, records of on uh, access to one's financial transactions and that kind of thing, credit records. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, has there ever been really a, a grassroots expression of public concern here? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, th- this, uh, this sensitivity to the, the fate of one's own data, the desire to control the what happens to information about oneself, rises and falls like many other concerns in public opinion. Uh, Watergate, I would say, was the period of, of greatest public alarm, and, and uh, over considerable government resistance, there was, uh, of course, this significant legislation that you mentioned, the Privacy Act of 1974, that does establish certain important rights and certain of, of Americans over certain forms of government record-keeping. And that, let's talk about some of those so people understand, like the law basically says that there won't be any secret uh, databases. But what's happened with that? <laughs> well, of course, uh, the fascinating thing about, uh, one fascinating thing and uh, disappointing thing about the Privacy Act of 1974 is it doesn't uh, doesn't apply to many of the government record-keeping activities that people are most alarmed about, like the, uh, the trolling through people's telephone records that seems to have been carried out under the, the Bush administration. But for, for certain routine, for many routine forms of uh, government data keeping, 
the Privacy Act of 1974 establishes the right to to know of the existence of the system, uh, to inquire into one's own records, and uh, indeed to challenge uh, erroneous or inappropriate data. And uh, the effect of uh, of these uh, provisions in the in the Privacy Act of '74 is to uh, at least give people access to an awareness of what's happening to to those forms of data that are that are covered by the law. Other aspects of the law, other provisions of the law, um, have not fared too well in interpretation. There's one key provision that says that personal data provided to one government agency for one purpose should not be shared to, with other government agencies without uh, the permission of the individual, which, right. if it were taken seriously, would be a very serious, private, a very uh, important privacy guarantee. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the interpretations given to the law, that provision has been virtually gutted. And so you know, one pretty much has to assume that data provided to one government institution is likely to likely to be made known to other government institutions, whether one likes it or not. You know, it seems to me that the only times we get some changes, and maybe even then we don't get changes, is when there is some egregious act that violates someone's privacy, and it's some celebrity or some congressperson, and it gets into the media. Like, remember when uh, Teddy Kennedy couldn't get on an airplane and mm-hmm. then they looked a little bit better into the TSA and then I guess the privacy officer that we interviewed was suddenly no longer didn't have her job. But, um, you know, that's still going on, that there's still problems with the TSA watch list and no-fly list and all that stuff. But at least it came to the forefront, even though thousands of people were not able to get on an airplane when it happened to Teddy Kennedy and it got into the newspaper, all of a sudden everybody says, we have to look at this. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's been my experience, especially with things like identity theft, when I've testified about horror stories of what has happened to people, and then it gets in the newspapers, that unless we have some outrageous happening, that then everybody must look at it, uh, it just is not transparent. I think horror stories play an enormous role in, in the, the way that people... Uh, learn about and react to this issue. Um, but, of course, horror stories don't always suffice. I mean, after all, as you point out, in the case of the uh, the senators being refused admittance to an airplane because uh, he's being on the terrorist watch list, uh, uh, the watch list system remains. We still don't know very much about how that, those watch lists are compiled. People certainly don't have uh, uh, a very broad opportunity to challenge uh, their own uh, listing on the watch list. And they can't find out why they're on it. They, That's right. You know, they can maybe get a little certificate that allows them to get on after they've been uh, interrogated for any like an hour before they mm-hmm. get on. But they still can't understand. They don't have the information to know why and correct that. Mm-hmm. And so one wonders uh, about the the NSA surveillance that was um, uh, that came to light at the end of 2005 with the New York Times story uh, detailing that uh, under the Bush administration uh, the National Security Agency had been empowered to troll in some way through people's ordinary Americans' uh, telephone records to, in search of contacts with terrorists. But it's never been clarified exactly what that monitoring uh, consists of and what it was aimed at and how people, uh, who who's who is monitored, whose telephone calls are are uh, checked, and I I am <laughs> eagerly awaiting a new administration in Washington in hopes that that whole story comes out, and it it could be that we see a number of revelations that amount to collective national horror stories, and that uh, we we experience another rise of privacy consciousness like the one at the time of Watergate that that, that uh, permitted some important legislation to be made. Do you think that's what it's going to take to have, I mean, what do you think? What do you think will turn the tide? Is that oh, what? I think uh, massive doses of public indignation uh, do ultimately make a difference, and politics matters, of course. A, a, a Democratic administration and a Democratic Congress is probably more likely to uh, pass significant uh, pro- improvements in privacy protection than a Republican uh, Republican uh, regime, all things considered. 
and and actually this is it's an interesting thought because there have been um it's really not a partisan issue though you know it, it there have been a lot of republicans who have spoken out about privacy uh very uh fervently you know what i mean mm-hmm. and uh, you know i think of ron paul mm-hmm. who he has talked about that um and then there have been some democrats but but i have i've seen both sides there you know it there it it I've seen some, I, I don't know about, I don't really trust that the Democrats or the Republicans are going to see it. I think it's going to have to be the individual that has certain ideas that they've experienced or have some insight. I, I don't really think, I'm a little worried. I, I'm not as trusting that it's going to be, that the Democrats are going to be better necessarily. That's no, what I'm saying, you know. No, I, I, I certainly think anybody would be crazy to. Uh, to make predictions in that respect, yeah, but yeah. Uh, if if it comes out, if there are stories uh, right. about uh, surveillance carried out by the NSA that make it apparent, as as I think may well have been the case, that the NSA was tr- was sifting through the records of anyone's telephone calls, right, any, any right. ordinary American's telephone calls, simply in an effort to establish patterns of telephone use that might, in some future context, predict terrorist sympathies or terrorist contacts. I think something like that could be sufficiently disturbing that uh, Americans could, uh, Americans, ordinary Americans, folks like you and me, uh, grassroots members of the public, would, would make enough fuss so that legislation or other official action would be inevitable. So, James, what do you think, what kinds of laws or policies appear to have the best chance of, you know, redressing all of our privacy losses. What do you think? You know, because it's so it's kind of really depressing thinking <laughs> of what I've you know what I've seen happen in Congress with all these things. What, what do you think has the best chance? Well, I've already mentioned one. Uh, I think it would be a terrific thing if people had a kind of property right over uh, over the commercialization, the commercial use of their personal data. Do you think? But I'm saying that that would be great. But do you think it has a real chance? I mean, realistically, given what's how these uh, how Congress really earns their money? <laughs> <laughs> well, not this year, maybe next year. Um, I think we could at least uh, expect uh, we could at least hope for legislation like the Euro- uh, on the European model that would forbid organizations of all kinds from exchanging personal data without permission from individuals. Even that would uh, it would bring us up more or less even with Europe and uh, would be a vast, Step ahead. Um, there could be uh, there could be at any time legislation to establish a privacy commissioner. But of course, uh, there are privacy commissioners of all descriptions, and some of them have proved to be lapdogs of their administrations. So uh, there is no uh, there is no institutional single institutional fix. Now I we're think, seeing I think, now, you know, California, which is now now your home again, and my home, and we're proud to be here be back here and you know we were the very first state to do a lot of things like we have the first office of privacy protection in this country the second one is wisconsin that copied us Mm -hmm. we were the first state to create the security breach notification law we were the second state to have an identity theft law and of course ours has gone far beyond arizona's which was the first Mm -hmm. we were the first state to really deal with the opt in for a third party, you know, so we've done a lot like that. So maybe, maybe there will be something that, you know, the, the federal government will copy, uh, just like they've done in some of our other legislation, maybe they'll copy and have maybe just an office of privacy protection that isn't really a whole commission. That's right. Well, that would be a big step ahead. The strength of commissions, privacy commissions in other countries, often lies in the fact that they're independent. They're not, uh, the privacy commissions are not necessarily appointed uh, by the executive. They can be appointed by parliament. They may have a, uh, the commissioner may have a, a term which is longer than the, the term of legislators so as to, to give a certain uh, uh, independence of action there. So there, there are many institutional possibilities. But for any of them to happen, people have to be indignant. And I don't think individual solutions like uh, 
you know, or refusing to show your personal ID when you get on the plane, or, or uh, yeah, it doesn't work. And uh, doesn't uh, you know the, these uh, these things just uh, cry out for collective solutions? And so, I'm hoping that there's a, a new collective mood on privacy matters that uh, uh, gets us uh, at least up even with the other democracies in the world. You know what I was thinking? We recently had Dan Solov, who has a new book called The uh, Future of Reputation on mm-hmm. the Internet, which was a, a great book, and we've had him on a couple times. And one of the things that made me, uh, I think, I've noticed, and I'm not a blogger, but I he's really into blogging, and I've been starting to read a lot of blogs, but the tremendous movement when we see, like, certain things on YouTube that, sar- that get passed from one to another. We just saw a hysterical one where this young uh, student who was pretending to be Bush, it, was, it wasn't it was mean, it was just really, really funny. He was making a mockery of, of, of President Bush, but in good jest. It wasn't nasty, mm-hmm. nasty. And, and now it's being passed everywhere. So this kid's mm-hmm. going to be a celebrity. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe what we need to do, James, is get you on like a YouTube thing and just have everybody <laughs> start passing <laughs> it around or having blogs that that get copied and and we have this huge grass you know grassroots movement through the internet maybe we're not using that us those of us who are most concerned about privacy maybe we're not using that enough i i think there's something to that i i think people like me and other privacy advocates are maybe not sufficiently flamboyant enough to uh, uh, to to make a, a a video that gets circulated the way the one that uh, you're describing would do. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we need to get get somebody to do that. Somebody who's <laughs> <laughs> somebody with the, the more theatrical. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, this, I do my little part with my little show here every week, you know. <laughs> but um, and you know, and we podcast, and we hope that you know there will be some movement of people listening to this, and and just the fact that we're doing this now is hopefully that we're inspiring people to think a little bit differently about privacy. I hope so, and I hope that we don't feel so fatalistic. I mean, a lot of people f- somehow have the idea that technology uh, is sort of acting independently has robbed us of our privacy, but things could be much different if we were willing to impose uh, constraints of, uh, uh, you know, through the, through the public process, through And law. technology actually could be used to increase privacy. I've had a lot of... Uh, you know, scientists type people on here to talk about some of the technology. There was a guy that we had on about the smart card, and I gave him a really hard time, but he came up with all sorts of creative ideas. And he happens to be French, by the way. Uh, Gilles Monique, what was his first name, Lloyd? Um, my, 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 oh, Gilles. Gilles Gilles uh, Monique. Mm-hmm. And he came up with a lot of privacy protections for the smart card that are, they're doing in Europe. So, mm-hmm. you know, I am of the belief that the technology can be used to increase privacy. That's right. Uh, so we, we've got to get over the idea that uh, privacy is gone, it's lost, it's been ro- stolen from us by technology, and, and start... Uh, Thinking of realistic constraints that could be imposed through legislation and policy. Well, I think when people read Privacy in Peril, which is your new book, How We Are Sacrificing a Fundamental Right in Exchange for Security and Convenience, I think it does give some very good examples of how we're doing it, and I think it does also give some very good suggestions. I think the the problem with a lot of us who are concerned about privacy is we aren't as um, united as a front ourselves uh, to really make, you know, have a mass movement to, to start that whole kind of group mind. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's one of the issues, too. So you could start something up there in Berkeley. I know you got Chris Hoofnigel up there, who's great. He's been on our show. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, all of us getting together. So why don't you just have a big party <laughs> up there at, uh, at Berkeley and invite all of us uh, people who are real active. I know you know Beth Givens and mm-hmm. many of the people who've been on our show. And we need to have a brainstorm of how do we really make this work to make a change. That's right. How do we make it a kind of gut issue for every American? And uh, I guess that's one reason why I'm attracted to the idea of of, uh, personal information as commercial property, because it's something that everyone could understand, and and, uh, it would 
clearly make a vast difference in the way that we get uh, treated by big organizations. Exactly, exactly. Then they would appreciate what they have from us and treat it with uh, as a real commodity. So, um, so should we be positive about what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Lloyd says we only have a minute here. So, um, what? We don't have a minute. We're at the end. Oh, that's what he said, that we're at the end. You've been wonderful. I just want to thank you so much, James Rule, for writing your book, Privacy in Peril, and we will have you back on again. Very good. Well, I look forward to it, and uh, it's wonderful to know the show. I'll be listening frequently. Okay, now you you, uh, go to your meeting, and and we'll keep in touch. Very good. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. And join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. And visit our website to listen to our previous interviews, see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, and go to www.KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you all for listening. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.